0: We're going to be permanently confused at our own names. (laughs) Well, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in at the Hebrews chapter 4. The reason all those churches are being planted or adopted that you saw on the screen is so that more and more people could hear from this, could experience The power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as His Word is preached in more and more places for the good of His people and the glory of Christ. And so we're going to get a chance to do that again this morning uh, from Hebrews 4. We're going to hear from the Lord. A little context. Uh, It's been said that there are two purposes for God's Word. One is to comfort the afflicted, and the other is to afflict the comfortable, And that is true of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Most of chapters 3 and 4 has been a warning about not entering into God's rest because of unbelief. You can be a person in a church setting. You could be sitting in this room right now. You could have all the the look of somebody who's going to heaven and you're not going because inside, internally, is an unbelief. In the true gospel. And so that was the warning of like the last chapter and a half. And that's to to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) The rest now, this last part of chapter four, is to comfort the afflicted. This is to give courage, confidence, assurance to the genuine believers. who read warnings, like three and four, and they think, is it me? And they know their own faults, and there's guilt on their conscience, and they're also aware of how life is hard, they're trying to do the right thing, but it doesn't always work out, and they fail and they fall. So where's the encouragement? We need comfort for the afflicted, genuine believer, uh, so that we don't spiral down into any kind of despair. And so that's what chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 are about. And so we're going to read those. Verses and then ask for God to open up it, its encouragement to us. God's word says this Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In time of need. Let's pray. It's your heart to give us grace. Thank you, Lord. We want to experience it this morning. We gathered here. Everybody got up. They made the effort. They're here in the room. And we are here to receive from you mercy and grace. I pray that that's everybody's disposition. I don't know where everybody's at spiritually. But Lord, I think that you are, and your word tells us, you are a God of mercy and a God of grace. And so show us that again, even in more tangible new ways. Get our minds wrapped around this morning and stir us up to faith and to confidence to walk out this life following Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I found out from being married that people aren't necessarily encouraged by the same things. <laughs> There's an amen. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, for example, I place a high value on facts, objective truths, rational arguments. I don't want to watch sad movies. I don't want to watch reels of pets doing interesting, funny things. I don't know why the way a dress looks is really that big of a deal. Give me a good book on theology. (laughs) Give me something that tells you how to climb a 14er or where's the best place to buy lumber. That's my jam. Facts and figures and rational information. Uh, That doesn't necessarily describe Mary. Uh, She's committed to objective truth for sure, but she has a deep appreciation for the value of relationships. For what's been called emotional intelligence. Uh, there's, a, there's a place for just knowing one another and experiencing good from one another and saying, I'm there for you. So give her a good meeting with friends at a coffee shop. Give her a family gathering where there's lots of food, a phone call just to say, how are you doing? That's what speaks to her soul. People aren't all encouraged by the same things. Well, this passage has both kinds of encouragement in it. It gives worried or weary Christians the rational, objective realities of the gospel and also the relational, personal side of it. In verse 14, we have the rational part. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's factual information about who Jesus is, what He has done. This is objective truth on which we can build our lives. But then in verse 15, we have the relational part. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That tells us about the personal relationship that Jesus has with his believers. He sympathizes with us. His heart goes out to us in our many troubles. And when we have this both relational and and rational parts of the gospel clear in our minds, it gives us confidence to do two things, two exhortations in the text. We hold fast our confession That is our confession of our faith. And we draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We get what we need to get through the day-to-day struggle of life as believers in Christ when there is so much working against it. Here is help for the conscience. That's weighed down with guilt. Here is help for the worried heart. That's weighed down with troubles. Here's rational and relational encouragement to be a confident, active follower of Jesus in this world. So I'm eager to walk through this and receive the encouragement for myself and be hopefully a means through which you hear it from the Lord also. So let's start with the rational encouragement that's in this text. Facts about who Jesus is and what he has done Here's all of verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now there's an exhortation there. There's something that we're being called to do. It's to hold fast the confession. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ. Hang on to it. Don't let this slip away. Don't let yourself waver about what you have believed just because it's hard to be a Christian in a non-Christian world. I think of the movie Master and Commander. Great flick. I wish it had turned into a series. It just came out at the wrong time. I think Star Wars was released at the same time, so nobody went to see it. It should have been like five or six movies. Anyway, great movie, Master and Commander. It's about a ship of war, a British ship of war in the 1800s, and they're chasing down this French ship that's been destroying all sorts of ships and stealing things from English vessels, so they're trying to hunt this thing down. And so the HMS Surprise is going around the world on this journey through rough seas and intense battles. And then on the ship, there's this crusty old white-haired, teeth-missing sailor, this crusty old sailor. And, And on his knuckles, he's got tattooed, hold fast. Like you can just imagine just holding on to that thing, and there's that net, that 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 exhortation, hold fast. You just know that he's lived a hard life in his days at sea. And no matter how tough it gets, he's saying, keep your head about you. Remember who you are. Remember the country you represent and what your duty is. Hold fast. I think that pictures what it means to hold fast to our confession. The next bad cultural news that hits your inbox can make you start to shift away from the faith you once professed. Um, People are leaving the faith. I was reading some survey about how over the pandemic, lots of people left religion, especially Christian religion. They didn't hold fast. There there wasn't something solid for them to grab onto, and it, it slipped away. There's pressure that mounts on you to abandon certain teachings of the Bible that are considered offensive. And so we have this, this exhortation, hold fast. Hold fast. Keep your head about you. Remember who you are. Remember who you represent and what your duty is. Hang in there with Jesus. That's the exhortation. But how do we get the strength to do that? Well, it's from the rational objective truth that comes right before it. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast. Since that's true, now you can hang on. It's a reminder of the gospel message of our salvation. Jesus is a great high priest. That means he's gone into the presence of God himself with a sacrifice that atones for our sin that sacrifice being his own life. Objective fact, truth that never changes in any circumstance of life, is this, we have guilt on our record, we have wrongs we've done, they deserve justice, they deserve a punishment, but God is merciful... He's made a way for us to escape the punishment. Jesus, the Son of God, enters this world on Christmas Day, born as a baby, grows up to adulthood, takes our guilt on himself, and then takes the punishment on himself on the cross. His death atones for our sin. He grants us a pardon. We are reconciled to God. That's what the high priest does. That's what he did. That's objective fact. But it doesn't end there. The high priest's life didn't end on the cross. Jesus has passed through the heavens. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. He met with his disciples in person in his new glorified, immortal body. They watched him be taken bodily up into the heavens, go out of sight into the clouds, where he now is with God on the throne, seated, ruling over this world with power and calling to himself this person and that person and the other into his kingdom, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. All around the world he's doing this. Everything is going his way because he's ruling over this thing. And everybody that he calls to himself is going to be resurrected with him And into this new creation that we can hardly even imagine how great it's going to be. Those are facts. That is history and guaranteed future. That doesn't change with the latest news that you hear, the latest problem in your life. You can hold fast to that. So do you want to hold fast and not ditch the Christian faith when things get hard? Hold on to the gospel. It's reliable. It won't let you down. That's the relation or the rational encouragement of this passage. That's the bedrock that we all have to have to live the Christian life. But there's also the relational encouragement in the passage. Because God knows that facts alone, even gospel facts about Jesus, aren't all that we need in any given moment in order to stay the course and be encouraged. There's the personal part, the part that engages with our feelings, our emotions, the part that reassures us that God genuinely knows and cares about us in the challenges that we go through, and sometimes... That relational part is the most powerful encouragement that we can get to keep going. So let's look at the relational encouragement. It's in verse 15. Having told us to hold fast our confession, he has the reason for doing it, another reason. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, this is so good to unpack. (laughs) That word sympathize, it really stands out. Our great high priest has not only atoned for sin and rules from heaven, from a seat of power, that's the objective rational truth, but before that he entered into our human experience. He became... God in man, so that He can genuinely experience what we experience and genuinely relate to what we experience and sympathize with our weaknesses, with our limitations, with the, with the difficulty of living for Him in this world. That's the relational part, the sympathy, the solidarity. The solidarity with us. I identify with you. I like the way the King James Version translated this. It says, Jesus is not someone who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We can say that He feels for us, To sympathize means to have feelings of pity or sorrow for someone who's in distress. It's a display of compassion, of care, this desire to console and to comfort. And we know what that looks like, don't we? The other day, yes, I heard a yep. Uh, The other day, Kristen put out a prayer request for her daughter Everly. I think a number of you got that if you were on the prayer chain. She went into the ER with a fever of 108.3. I didn't know it could go that high. Seriously, I'd never heard of anything that high. So she was miserable, didn't know what was going on, rushed her to the ER. Um, fortunately, she's here today. <laughs> God worked. She got through it. But as in one of the updates, as this was playing out, Kristen said this. She said, my heart hurts watching her go through everything, my heart hurts. That's sympathy. I hurt for you. You matter to me so much that when you suffer, I suffer. I'm not the one with the fever. I'm not suffering what you're suffering, but my heart hurts for you in your suffering. Now, can you believe that Jesus feels that way towards you in your suffering? He does. Thomas Goodwin, the preacher who lived in the 1600s, he wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Seventy pages were devoted to chapter 4, verse 15. (laughs) One verse. That's how the Puritans rolled. You know, they just kept going you know, on one, one verse, wringing every bit of truth out of it that they could. It was usually beautiful. But here was the subtitle of his book. The gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in His human nature, now in glory, unto His members under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or misery. (laughs) That's a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) But what's he getting at? Simply this, if you're a member of Christ, if you're a genuine believer in his saving work, you cannot suffer without his heart being moved. It doesn't matter if the suffering is your fault or somebody else's, he sympathizes. He has a tender affection. He hurts for you in your distress. And we might have trouble believing that. One reason is because it might make Jesus seem weak. We might think that if Jesus really feels our hurts, then he must be the most depressed person that there is because millions of his members are suffering all the time. And if he feels all of that, he must be crushed with sorrow constantly. And that doesn't sound like somebody who's in a good place that I can go to for strength. It doesn't sound like a victorious Savior who has passed through the heavens. But we look at the biblical evidence for His sympathy for sinners and sufferers, and it's there. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, whom He loved, in John 11. Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When he was persecuting Christians, he feels that suffering. You do it to them, you're doing it to me. And then, of course, the clear statement in Hebrews 4.15, he is not untouched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is touched. This is where the great mystery of Jesus as both God and man comes into play. Jesus is truly a human being with human emotions, one of the most precious of which is that He does feel our hurts personally. But Jesus is also the Son of God, infinite in His capacity to bear the weight of our suffering, yet not be crushed by all that suffering, still almighty and still full of joy in the knowledge that He has victoriously won our ultimate deliverance from all suffering." For for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he did it. He accomplished it. He knows the end of our story. He knows the suffering, and he enters into the suffering now, but at the same time, he knows, but I've bought you, and I am happy that you are going with me (laughs) to endless glory. He's not depressed. He just bears the weight of it. He just has the compassion. He genuinely enters in. Our own sympathy, like Christians for Everly, is a reflection of the heart of Christ. It's how a fully functioning human heart should respond to another person's distress. Paul said to the Corinthians, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Why? Because we are the body of Christ, and the members of Christ should feel something when another part of our body is feeling hurt. We should feel something. The anomaly, the evidence that sin has affected us, is when we don't feel anything when someone else is suffering. But one of the beautiful things that Jesus is doing in building his church is creating a community where we matter to one another. Where we genuinely enter into each other's distress with compassion, with consolation. So that when Kristen sends out an email and says, here's what's going on, pray for us. We're like, yeah, I'm going to stop right now and I'm going to pray for her. Because I care how that turns out. That's what Jesus is building. Friends, isn't that sometimes the most powerful help that we can give to one another? This relational gospel lived out towards one another, this heart of Christ. I found that by a hospital bed, people don't really care about all your theology in that moment. (laughs) They don't need me to come in there and rattle off a bunch of truths about God's sovereignty or whatever, what they remember, what encourages them, you were there. You, cra- you cried. <laughs> you, you, it mattered. You remembered me. I'm not alone. I don't care what you say. <laughs> Just be there. That's the heart of Christ. That's sympathy. That holds true in a lot of our conversations that we're going to have one-on-one or in a small group. Anytime somebody discloses, here's what I'm struggling with. The first impulse shouldn't be, bam, let's fix you. It's, oh, that's hard. (laughs) Let me feel that with you. And then let's look to Jesus. Let's look to the one who gets it the one who sympathizes. And more than sympathizes, the one who can do something about it and did do something about it. We'll come to that soon enough. Now, we can't leave this point without understanding why Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses, with our infirmities, with our struggles. And it's in the next phrase of verse 15. It's because Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. We'll stop there tempted as we are he actually knows what it's like to be in our shoes he has been tempted by sin we have a hard time saying that about jesus it doesn't sound right Uh, because it makes it sound like well was there something wrong with him that he was actually tempted We have to take this word for what it says. He was in all respects tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's very important to remember. We'll come back to that. But he was tempted to not hold fast to faithfulness to God and to God's word. So he gets what that's like for us. He, he can relate. He knows exactly what you face today and tomorrow as, as someone who's been there himself. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus was personally in every conceivable circumstance of temptation. He was never tempted to spend too much time on his cell phone. Didn't have one. He wasn't tempted to yell at the kids, his kids, because he didn't have any but he was tempted in every respect and that is in all the ways that are common to man 1 Corinthians 10:13 says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man there's a standard package of temptations that every one of us faces in this life temptations to fear temptations to be selfish to be uncaring to lust After that which isn't ours, to be lazy, to love money, to slander, to be dishonest. And most of all, to live as if we don't need God, or to charge Him with wrong when He doesn't do what we ask Him to. We experience those temptations. Those are common to man, and Jesus experienced those temptations because He was a real human being. Now, here's just a short list of how he was tempted. We know from Mark's gospel that Jesus grew up in a big family. He was the oldest of five brothers and at least two sisters. So you who come from large families, is there not ample opportunity to be tempted by sin (laughs) in in the house? (laughs) When you have a bunch of immature children, teens, and tweens... I grew up with three brothers and a sister, and it was bedlam in our house much of the time. We put holes in the walls. We broke windows. We fought. (laughs) Jesus grew up in an environment with the common family temptations. He also worked a job as a carpenter. That means he experienced the curse of the fall, which made work full of thorns and thistles. Things that Um, you can't obtain. Like maybe he he needed wood, he couldn't get it. Uh, Customers that can't be satisfied. It's never good enough for them. Uh, You know, worms that eat through your wood and rot it out. I mean, it's all part of a fallen world that everybody experiences to some degree. Work has been made hard. Jesus experienced that. He could have had the temptation to get frustrated with that and throw something down. He experienced temptations, but the biggest temptation was in his calling to be our Savior. He was led up into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Who showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Here's here's a plan B. You don't have to suffer. I'll give you the whole world. Just one thing. Worship me instead of God that's a temptation the easy way out then there's Peter he rebuked Jesus for his talk about being killed in Jerusalem far be it from you Lord this shall never happen to you again another temptation abandon this path get those thoughts out of your head about being crucified that's not going to happen you're wrong temptation there then there's Judas who betrayed him with a kiss Leading, him, leading his enemies to arrest him. The disciples that he poured his life into for three years, they all deserted him when he was arrested. The sham trial, they accused him of blasphemy. He says he's the Son of God, the Christ. Well, he was. <laughs> the whipping the crucifixion, the passers-by hurling insults at him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And he could have. He had that power. That was a temptation. And hardest of all, his cry of desolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. At every point in his life, Jesus was tempted to not trust God or to obey him, even to death on a cross to make atonement for our sins. He gets what it is like to be tempted. It was real temptation. Now again, that's a mystery that's solved only by the fact that Jesus is both God and man. Because James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil in His deity, but a man, a human, can be tempted by evil. And somehow, the real human who can be tempted and the real God who cannot be, can, cannot be tempted form into one God-man <laughs> where the temptation is real and felt And yet it's completely resisted at the same time, successfully. It shows the heart of God for us because part of the reason Jesus became man was so that he could be tempted into human nature, so that we can know he really does understand, he relates to us. It isn't fake. He knows what we go through with the one important difference, that he never sinned. And that's how verse 15 ends. Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every time he was tempted to leave the path of faithfulness, to give up and disobey God, he never gave in to that temptation. He never gave in to self-pity or frustration. He never sought to find an easier path that wouldn't lead to the cross. He never sinned in his whole life. And that is so good to know for two reasons. First, because that's how he secured the eternal well-being of his people, by not sinning, by not deviating from his path to the cross. Only a sinless man can die for the sins of others rather than for his own. Jesus had to be the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world or he couldn't do it. If he had yielded to temptation for even one second, at any point in his whole life, from childhood to the cross, there would be no atonement. There would be no great high priest who passes through the heavens. But he didn't sin. And so there's hope. Hope for all who trust in his sacrifice for forgiveness. That's the first reason that it's good to know he didn't sin. The second reason is because it actually strengthens the case that he was tempted more than we will ever be, and yet he overcame. And so that means he can help us overcome in our temptations. You see, the one who has resisted temptation to the very end has done a harder thing than the one who resists for a little while and then gives in. Think of temptation like a challenge to hold your breath for three minutes, like we try to do when we go through the Eisenhower Tunnel up in the mountains. It takes about three minutes to go through the Eisenhower Tunnel. And so right when we're getting up to the front of it, we all take a deep breath and see if we can hold it all the way to the other side, (laughs) which we can never do. We only get like halfway, maybe. And then, ah, we have to take a deep breath. Uh, We just can't hold it together. The person who could actually make it for the whole three minutes has done the harder thing. They've gone all the way to the end and didn't give in. Temptation is like that. Eventually, we do give in to some sin. doesn't have to be all of them all the time, but we do give in to many sins. But Jesus never did. It's like he held his his breath for the three minutes every single time. Never missed. He outlasted. Every temptation, he experienced the full force of every temptation because he outlasted it to the end. And that means no temptation you'll ever experience can be more than what he experienced. We can never say, you don't know what I'm going through. We can't say that because he does know. He knows more than we do ourselves. But because he's overcome, it means he, we can also overcome with his help. And that leads to the last point. So we've seen the encouragement to hold fast our confession holds it comes from two sources. One is the rational, objective truth of the gospel, that Jesus atoned for our sin and he rules in heaven for our good. The other is the relational, personal reality that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. His heart is full of tender affection for us. Together, those two things lead us to where we can get help to overcome our temptations. So the last point is, what do we do with this encouragement? Here's what we do. Verse 16, "'Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace.'" that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Help to overcome our temptations and sins is available to us. In Jesus, we have one who has given us free and welcome access to the throne of God To get the help we need, Jesus turned the throne of judgment into a throne of grace for all believers, a place to receive mercy and find grace. In Christ, there's always mercy. There's always that fresh remembrance that we will not get the punishment that we deserve for our sins because He took it on Himself. That's the mercy. We don't get what we deserve. (laughs) He took what we deserve. And then there's always fresh grace, which is God's favor, of it's His favor towards sinners. It's, it's grace to help in time of need. It's, it's the practical support, intervention of God, whatever's needed in the moment, that God acts and does so that we get through, whether that's just all of a sudden I finally I finally have faith today. I'm going to go for it. Or some circumstance changes, and so that was helpful. I couldn't have have done it if that didn't happen. Grace is going to be there. It's going to be coming from the throne, from God's favor. That's what Jesus has won for us. So the writer is encouraging us to draw near. Draw near with confidence, he says. To this throne of grace. Let there be no hesitancy. You've got guilt on your conscience. No surprise. God knows more about it than you do. He, he laid it on Jesus, every single thing. You aware of your, your inadequacies, your limitations, the challenge in front of you is too much for you. No surprise. <laughs> That's why I sent Jesus into this world <laughs> to get you through. With faith, I expect you to come to me. (laughs) That's what weak people do. That's what I have given Jesus the, the, the mission to do so that you can come to me. So let there be no reluctance, no hesitancy. With confidence, come and say, I need help. I need help for my conscience. I need help for my problem in front of me. And he's generous. He's ready to do it. Draw near. Come and get it. The door is open because Jesus opened that door. Well, how do we draw near, though? The obvious answer is still the best answer. You go to God's Word, and you go to prayer. (laughs) We listen to Him in His Word, and we get His mind on our situation. We, We remember the promises that He's for us, that He's going to be enough for us. We get our heads straight. We listen to what He has to say. And then we talk to Him about what's going on. We pour out our hearts before Him. We ask Him for help. There's so many scriptures in the Bible talking about prayer. Pray. Jesus prayed. (laughs) He was a human, and He prayed because He was the most dependent human on earth. Every moment he was drawing strength from God. And we need to do the same thing. Prayerlessness is a sign of pride that we don't think we actually need help from God. Or it's a sign of unbelief. We just don't believe that God is going to do anything. We're encouraged to resist those notions and come boldly before the throne of grace and draw near to God in His word and prayer. That's where we get the help we need to resist temptation and overcome sin as Jesus did by the power of the Spirit. And especially, remember to draw near to God with others. We often forget that so much of Scripture is written to groups. It isn't only the individual. When you're struggling, a lot of times we don't make any progress because we're the only ones who know that we're struggling. We say, I'm praying about it and nothing changes. Well, it might change if you brought in the body, (laughs) your your small group setting, and said, this is what I'm struggling with. And then they pray. They draw near to God with you. We all come together, holding up our brother, holding up our sister, and saying, Lord, we need your help, corporately, for her sake, for his sake. And that could be the reason there's no breakthrough if we don't do that. But when we do that, then there's new strength. We draw near to God through word and through prayer. But we have to remember one thing, lest we have wrong expectations about what happens next after we pray. The passage says, draw near to the throne because we may find grace to help in time of need. Literally, in the original it says grace for a timely help. The Christian Standard Bible translates it, grace to help us at the proper time. We always think we know what the proper time is for God's help (laughs) and what that help ought to be when we're praying. Lord, I need an answer for what I'm going to do with my life by next Friday. (laughs) Lord, I need my boss to treat me better today. Lord, we need the Supreme Court to rule for religious freedom in the next case that's before them. We often feel like we know what the help is that we need and exactly when that help should come. But the one who has been tempted and tried and then passed through the heavens knows better. As we draw near to him in every prayer, he knows the right timing and the right manner of every help And He will help. We will receive mercy. We will find grace to help at the right time. (laughs) Be sure of it. (laughs) He wants us to be sure of it. He wants us to come with confidence that we will receive. So let's do it. Let's grab hold of it with both hands (laughs) because we're going to need it this afternoon and Monday and next week and next year. Let's hold fast to it by His help. Let me just close with this. Let's believe the rational and relational encouragement about Jesus. He atoned for our sins. He sympathizes with our weakness. He's given us access to the omnipotent hand of God who sits on the throne of the world. Mercy and grace flow from His throne. There's sympathy and help from heaven to live confidently for Christ. And we're going to experience it time and time again as we draw near to God in the word and prayer, individually and together. I ask that we could close with the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I know it's an old song and it's a little slow, but the words, (laughs) they're so good. It connects that friendly heart of Christ to this confidence that when we come to Him, when we draw near to the throne of grace in prayer, oh, so many th- things happen. Oh, so much good comes to us, so much help. So we're going to sing that as a way of putting the exclamation point on this passage, and we're going to sing ourselves into believing it. <laughs> so, Spencer, thank you for coming up and doing that. Let me just pray. I pray, Lord, that we could hold on to this. You're holding on to us. That's another big picture. It's not all about us hanging on you, hanging on to us. But practically, experientially, we need to have that habit. And so help us to have the habit of drawing near with expectation and confidence that we will always have a timely help for what we need to follow you. What a great promise that is. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.